Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, everyone. It's me, Kine, and welcome back to Think Queen. Today's episode is all about the climate crisis, microplastics, and remaining fabulous during an existential threat. If you've been anywhere other than under a rock the past 30 years, you've heard of climate change and global warming and pollution. And the thing is, we're all aware that there's a problem, but how serious is this problem? I mean, are we going extinct in 100 years from now? And if so, why aren't we doing more right now? How much should we sacrifice towards solving this problem? Why should we have to carry around used straws in our purses while Taylor Swift is out here firing up the private jet to grab coffee with a friend? To help us answer these questions, we're joined today by award-winning science broadcaster Zaya Tong, member of the board of directors at the World Wildlife Fund International, former co-host of Daily Planet, and author of The Reality Bubble. Hi, Zaya. Hi, Kain. It's wonderful to be here with you. But before we get started, I just have a question on protocol, which is when one meets the queen of STEM podcasting, do I curtsy or do I bow? You bow for me. (laughs) (laughs) No, honestly, thanks for bringing glamour into science podcasting. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. You look glamorous yourself as well. Well, I had to, I had to, I had to put on some lashes. I knew who I was meeting with today. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I want to start off. I want to hear about the path that you took to get here as a science broadcaster and author. Well, it's a little bit unusual. I didn't take the traditional path. I actually started off interviewing in prisons. So I was going to be, yeah, I was going to work as a forensic psychologist. I was at UBC. There was a master's and PhD program there. And my professors were the world's leading experts in psychopaths. And uh, there was a neuroscience lab there really looking at great brain work, seeing what was different in the in the brains of psychopathic criminal populations mm-hmm. compared to regular criminal populations. So it was really exciting work. And it was the question of, of evil, right, in essence. So it was something I never thought I would become bored over. And I started doing a lot of the interviews there. But of course, it's a pretty dangerous occupation, as you can probably imagine. And my professors both had death threats. So I had a plan B. And my plan B was uh, applying to McGill because I also Mm -hmm. had a deep love of animals and loved watching David Attenborough, Jane Goodall. And I had this whole other passion that I also wanted to explore, right? All of us have more than one passion. Oh, yeah, totally. uh, 
instead of taking door number one, I took door number two, which was going to be a big mystery for me. I didn't know what was going to happen when I stepped through that door, but here I am with you. <laughs> so it, it took me on a circuitous route, uh, but that's how I ended up interviewing anyway, to begin with. Yeah, I love animals as well. I love birds. Birding has become like the pandemic hobby that I took on and it gets me outside. I feel like it's Pokemon. Like it, finding it new absolutely birds. <laughs> is. It's, you know, it's, I think it's really for the advanced naturalists in many ways, right? You're looking at the ancient dinosaurs, your, your dinosaur yeah. spotting. There's nothing cooler. I want to ask you about a quote from your book, The Reality Bubble. You say, in the 21st century, there are cameras everywhere, except for where our food comes from, where our energy comes from, and where our waste goes. Can you elaborate a bit on what you mean by that? Sure. Well, this was a shower thought that really struck me when I was starting to write the book. And it's kind of bizarre, right? When you think about it, here we are, we are the most powerful species, the most powerful animals on earth, but we're blind to how we survive. Every other animal knows where its food comes from, how it generates mm -hmm. its energy to a degree where its waste goes. And it's weird when you think about it even more, because what you start to realize is if you start looking into where our food comes from, where our energy comes from, or where our waste goes, in many cases, you can get arrested. It's kind of illegal, right? One of the boys really? that serve on, yeah, is We Animals Media. So these are the folks that go into factory farms with cameras and film what's happening to you know the cows or the pigs in those awful conditions, because we're not really allowed to see it. So people get arrested when they do that. Folks mm -hmm. get arrested when they're, you know, trying to film what's happening at nuclear power plants or what's happening in oil fields. Same thing. There are folks who get arrested when they're trying to show what's happening with where our waste goes. And in fact, if you think about it, a lot of times when people are looking at where our waste goes, you need investigative reporters. It's sort of like the fifth estate or W5 and people have mm -hmm. hidden cameras and go behind the scenes. So it's weird when you really think about the things that actually you know, keep us alive, our life support system is mm -hmm. invisible to all of us. Yeah, I feel as humans, we have like created such a huge system of like strings and pulleys and all these hidden systems that you're talking about. It's sort of contributed to our success as a species, but also is contributing to our downfall. For the past few decades now, we've been hearing scientists talking about climate change. I mean, when I was young, people used to say global warming, but that phrase has kind of become outdated. The way I understand it is that the warning that the scientists are talking about is just a matter of like one or two degrees Celsius. So can you explain why just a couple of degrees of warming is such a big deal? Yeah. Well, if you think about the planetary body and the human body, right, they have some similarities. So if you're at 37 degrees Celsius, you're normal, right? But mm -hmm. if you have 38 degrees, one degree up, you have a fever. 39 degrees, you've got a high mm -hmm. fever. 40 degrees, that's like life-threatening. And it's the same thing with the planet. All you have to do is change that system by one degree or two degrees, and you've got a planet that is already in crisis, right? The planet already has a fever. We're starting to see that it is heating up in many places already. And it is shivering. It is getting cold. It's like the mm. fever, the cold shakes, right? We're seeing those polar vortices. We're seeing, you know, droughts and wildfires all over the place. So yeah, just a couple of degrees can make a huge difference. 
I want to ask this question. This is going to sound like, I promise I'm not a climate change denier, but I just have to ask this. (laughs) Speaking as a devil's advocate, because we've heard for decades from politicians and activists, scientists, that we're sort of nearing a tipping point, a point of no return. We've sort of heard this for a while now. In 2006, Al Gore said that the world would reach a point of no return in 10 years if drastic measures weren't put in place. That was 2006. 10 years later was 2016. Now it's 2023. So what would you say to a skeptic who sees that and says, aha, it sounds like these politicians are just trying to cause fear and panic? Yeah, I think one of the key things is it's certainly not not happening in places like Pakistan or in places like the Horn of Africa or, Mm -hmm. you know, there are so many places where the feeling and the reality of climate threats is very, very real. Like the Abaco Islands. I don't know if you remember a few years ago when there was a hurricane, you know, four, almost five, that obliterated the island in its entirety. Trying to tell those people that something like climate change doesn't exist for them would be an incredibly painful thing because that's their lived reality, right? And it's not affecting everyone all at once. You know, it's like dropping bombs all Mm. over the planet. Here in BC, of course, in Canada, just a couple of summers ago, we had that heat dome that killed all those people, that flattened a town, that killed a billion animal species, marine species in the ocean. So it, it depends. I think as you start to move along, everybody will soon be affected. It's just really a matter of time. So people can be skeptical to a certain degree. And then um, sometimes they reassess when it starts to happen to friends and loved ones. I mean, same thing. You saw what happened in Australia, right? When Mm -hmm. the skies went blood red in the year of 2020, when there were little koala bears, you know, running around burnt and singed everywhere. It's pretty hard to say to the people living there that climate change isn't real. There's definitely something to be said about how those of us who live in, you know, first world countries, often these are the countries that contribute the most to climate change because of our consumption habits. And yet the first big disasters are going to be the hardest on the most vulnerable countries who have the smaller footprints as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why people are really trying to assure that damages we can actually contribute during those COPs to loss and damage for many of those countries who are suffering from that now. I kind of think of it this way. You know how like if you had an apartment in a building and if your neighbor ran the hot tub in the apartment above yours, that you Mm -hmm. would be able to file for loss and damages if that thing overflowed. Now imagine living in the basement of a building and everybody is richer than you and all of those hot tubs are overflowing right into Mm -hmm. your place. You should be able to file for loss and damages. And so I think that a lot of the countries that are suffering now deserve to, to get that monetary financial backing so that they can at least build their world so that they can adapt and protect themselves as best they can. Because as you said, they didn't even cause the problem to begin with. I had an Uber driver just the other day, and he was a refugee from Iran. And basically, he was a climate change denier. I don't know how we got onto the topic of conversation. I mean, when I'm a passenger, I kind of just like nod along like to whatever Mm -hmm. crazy thing they're talking about. But this guy, he was telling me about how he thought all the mainstream media was full of propaganda. Basically, from his perspective, he has witnessed war and so much violence that to him, the idea of a guy in a lab coat saying that we're facing an existential threat because of what's coming out of your exhaust pipe is 
ridiculous to him. And I guess it sort of ties into your idea of us living in these bubbles, being blind to reality, because I feel like this is how a lot of people feel, even if they're not conspiracy theorists, even if the average person does believe that climate change is a threat. You know, there are people out there who are living through wars, people fighting for human rights, people living paycheck to paycheck, just trying to scrape by. So it can feel sometimes that climate change is like a first world problem, you know, switching to reusable bags and buying a hybrid car are like luxuries to some people. So how how would you respond to that? Well, I think the key thing, you know, in a place like Iran or places in the Middle East is the rivers and the waters are starting to dry up, right? So I, mm. I think you probably saw last year everywhere from the Po River to the Yangtze River. I start, I was doing a talk and it was blowing my mind because river after river after river was drying up. So that's obviously related to the climate threat. But we, you and I, kind, we are 60% water. We are walking, talking bags of water. We need mm. water, not just to drink because we'll die without it, but also for all of our food. So think of an arid area like the Middle East where you desperately need your water in order to have your crops. Sure, for now, while things are somewhat brittle and still somewhat okay, and you can go to the supermarket and you can get your food, things look normal. That's the bubble, mm -hmm. right? But the minute those systems really start to collapse, that's when you get a level of warfare, the likes of which we have not seen even yet, right? Because when we're starting to see whether it's the food chain starting to, it's getting brittle now, but any sort of food chain collapse, supply chain collapse, plus the situations with water, people will definitely start to, to wage war in a way that is, you know, We've seen so much of it already in places like the Middle East, so much of it already in arid lands, and he is right about that. But it's just going to get a heck of a lot worse. Are we talking like 50 years, 100 years? How serious of an existential threat really is this? Well, I think you're right, because when you said, oh, Al Gore said it was going to be this situation by this time or whatever, mm. scientists are, are not in the role of being... Um, they don't have a crystal ball. They can't give you the date. No. And a lot of the times when they make the mistake of giving you a date because they get pressed for it or whatever, then people come back and say, you said it was this time and mm -hmm. it wasn't this time. And it shouldn't be that way, right? Like, I mean, really, we're looking at a, a window, a frame mm -hmm. of time. I mean, all of us have those sort of experiences now that didn't exist in our childhood. You know, when I go back to Vancouver, Almost every second summer now, I look up into the skies and it's like apocalyptic, bleak, wildfire smoke skies where my mom's deck actually has ashes that you can, you know, you have footprints of ashes when you're walking along from all the wildfires. And that didn't happen a few wow. years ago. You know, that was not normal. And the fact that we're actually increasingly saying, oh, no, 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 this is this is kind of normal. You know, 44 degrees, 50 degrees in certain places, it's completely not normal. And the normal thing to do is to say that it is not normal. And the reason why, you know, some people, you're right, there are people who are denying and there's the Kubler-Ross curve. Have you ever heard of that in psychology? I so haven't. it's basically it's basically like what happens to people when they're confronting death and dying. So mm. they go through denial, then they go through, you know, shock, then they get really depressed, and then they move into integration and decision making. It's the same thing a little bit with climate denial or denying that the biodiversity, you know, crisis is happening. We definitely have people who are in climate denial, a smaller group. Mm -hmm. They're still like, no, 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 not happening. Then you have a bunch of people who are super depressed, 
the doomers, right? We're like, mm -hmm. we're paralyzed. We can't do anything. But the great thing now is we're starting to move and there are scientists and thinkers, you know, mobilized by tons of young people who are also moving into solution mode and integration mm -hmm. mode and acceptance mode of, okay, here's the situation now, what are we going to do? And that's when you start moving into a, a healthier psychological space of how to deal with things. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome back to the podcast. You mentioned a biodiversity crisis. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, I think many of us have heard of the term extinction. And mm -hmm. uh, right now there's about a million species, a million species that are uh, currently threatened with extinction around the world, really? plant and animal species. So yeah, it's a huge number. And WWF issues a living planet report every couple of years. And in the last 40 years, so in my lifetime, we've lost uh, population-wise 68% of vertebrate animal species that have been monitored, 68%. Oh my God. So think of that. Two-thirds of the animal populations that we've been monitoring have tanked, have gone down. So we know that from, you know not as many birds singing, the loss of bird song. We know that from, you know, even people who are studying things like insect splatters on car windshields, right? We used to, used to drive along at night and, you know, your car windshield would just be like splat, 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 splat. That doesn't happen as much. But when you start thinking about what are the ramifications of things like insects, that affects everything all the way up the food chain, right? So we mm -hmm. are a part of that system. And so it's pretty important that we, that we think about it. Do you think that in some sense, the earth and all the life on earth would be better off without humans? No, because we are just one of many species, right? We're a little bit diluted because we think we're the most powerful species on mm -hmm. earth. So we we almost have some sort of weird psycho CEO syndrome, you know, where we're trying to be the boss of everything. And that is not working very well. I think we mm -hmm. need to kind of recognize our role with all the other 8.7 million other animal species. And that's why indigenous cultures are so much better at it. You know, they've been mm -hmm. able to maintain and, and be stewards for land systems for millennia because they are part of the system, not above yeah. the system. So you're working on a documentary on plastics. And as we all know, plastics are killing our oceans. And now there's all this research about microplastics that are like in our bodies. So how how is plastic going to affect our future? 
Well, plastic is the same stuff, fossil fuels, oil and gas, right? And of course, the incredible thing is all of that comes from an ancient civilization or not civilization, I would say ancient life forms, ancient life forms that basically create the fuel that we burn up into the sky today, or we turn it into plastic, which sort of lasts forever. And as you probably know, uh, plastic doesn't go anywhere. It mm. just photodegrades, right? The sun breaks it down into tinier and tinier pieces. And so much around us is plastic that we don't think about, right? Our couches, our rugs, our clothes. You know, sometimes you see somebody who's like, you know, a yogini, somebody who's in yoga gear and they're just carrying a plastic bag and you think, oh, mm -hmm. that's the plastic bag. But everything else around us is covered in plastic, even our lashes, right? I know so. you're you're so right. I'm thinking about my sequin dress that's right behind me right now, but you're right. Even my lashes, if they're Your synthetic. Lashes your plastic mascara, the kind of lengthening mascara, all that stuff contains plastic in it. And every time we wash our faces, it kind of sheds down into, mm -hmm. into the drains and gets out there. And as you know, we're starting to eat plastic. We're starting to drink plastic. A study looking in 12 countries found that 83% of our tap water had plastic. And so the documentary that I'm working on now, it's called Plastic People. I'm going to be meeting with the world's top scientists, uh, plastic, microplastic researchers, and looking at what is the impact of plastic in our blood? What is the impact mm -hmm. of plastic in our guts, in our lungs, in our livers, in all these different places? Because uh, it, it can't be good. I can tell you that. And it's not looking, I know. It's looking like a bit of a horror show, really, to be honest. Oh, I believe it. It's just, I feel it's hard to know really what the right thing to do is because I'm thinking about my lashes now. And I, I remember I've made like conscious choices not to get lashes made out of mink fur because I don't really believe in supporting that and then I also think about like feather boas I've sort of given up on wearing feathers and fur in drag because I'm become such a bird lover so yeah. my boas and lots of my clothes are synthetic so there's like a trade-off there's always something that you were doing wrong in our choices of what we're consuming well, I think that's the thing, right? That's the trap that keeps everybody paralyzed. So I think mm -hmm. that it's important to, I think the main thing when it comes to clothes is to keep what you have for a long time. I learned something the other day. If, if people care about things like microplastics, the mm -hmm. number one thing you can do is actually turn your washing machine to gentle spin. And that reduces like 75% of the microplastic really? shedding. It's like huge. Yeah. From, from the washing machine end of it. Absolutely. You can reduce it. People don't think about things like their contact lenses. They throw them mm. in the toilet. That's a huge source yeah. of microplastics, believe it or not. But, wow. you know, I think we can reduce and, and keep using things, have things for a long, long time. Don't chuck them all the time. But things like contacts, I'm probably going to keep wearing contact lenses, right? Like I need to mm -hmm. see. And there is no other way for it. I mean, I do have glasses for sure. But yeah. I think we just have to be smart about it. But then again, I think the trap is always trying to get it to be a consumer problem rather mm -hmm. than a manufacturing or a state level problem uh, where things need to be looked at at a system-wide level, not just at the consumer level. Although it always needs to be both because both have an impact. Yeah, well, that is exactly what I wanted to ask you next because I feel like online, like there's this huge discourse about you have people on one side saying, oh, we all have to do our part. We all have to step up, use paper straws, go vegan. And then on the other side, you have people saying, no, that's all wrong. We have to really put the pressure on large corporations. And on that note, I actually recently discovered 
the idea of a person's carbon footprint was made popular by the oil company BP in like this PR stunt to shift the blame and the responsibility onto personal choices. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's that same thing with recycling, right? Mm -hmm. Only 9% of stuff gets recycled and it's the plastics companies that are like, oh, let's get everybody to recycle so that we can kind of shift the job onto them. But there's two ways to look at this, right? Because mm. it, it's not either or, and I don't think it ever should be framed as an either or uh, solution. Because when I think about something like meat, right? Uh, people love to on vegans. <laughs> I don't know why, because they're the biggest animal lovers there are out there. But if mm -hmm. you think about it, these days, when you go to a Whole Foods, because of vegans and because of them saying, hey, let's not hurt the baby cows and et cetera, et cetera, you have situations where if you go to Whole Foods, now 50% of the milk choices there will be oat milk versus, you know, cow milk, right? That's right. You know, cows in prison. Nobody really wants cows in prisons. So thank you to the vegans for actively making these choices. And the same thing's happening now, whether it's with cellular agriculture. Do you know what cell ag is? I don't. Oh, it's so great. So basically what people are doing now is if you took, say, the stem cell of a chicken, right, mm -hmm. of a feather from a chicken, you can take those cells and you can grow them in a bioreactor, just like you would take normal cells in our normal bodies that they replicate mm -hmm. all the time. And they're making chicken meat out of that. So in places like Singapore, you actually, mm -hmm. they're starting to sell this chicken meat. It tastes exactly like chicken meat because it is chicken, yeah. but no animals are harmed. There's, you know, less water used, less land used. When it comes to things like methane for cows or or chickens or what have you, there's less of that. So it's going to impact climate change less, less pandemic issues, less antibiotic issues. So science is actually kind of coming to the rescue in this instance. And it's with, you know, people who are banging the drums, like mm -hmm. the vegans saying, let's stop harming the animals. Science getting involved and going, okay, what kind of solutions can we come up with? And the end consumer going, oh my God, I've just got a chicken burger without destroying the planet. So, so there are win-win solutions out of this. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that those were, I've like heard of the lab-grown meats, but I've only ever heard of it like in articles. I didn't know you could go out and get one. I'm curious yeah, now. They, I want to try. Yeah, they have like in Singapore, you can order it on your app, kind of like Uber. But there's also something called precision fermentation, which mm -hmm. is brewing meat, kind of the, like the way you would brew beer, like with yeast, right? Oh. And it's using microbes to create protein. And so there's a company now called Air Protein, and they are making meat from air kind. It is so cool. So I, uh, you know, I've always said I'm not doom and gloom. I'm really doom and bloom. Because once we start thinking about clever, creative, smart ways that we can use our science, we actually have all the solutions we need. They're already out there. I feel like lots of us are sort of hanging on to this hope that science is going to save us and get us through this crisis. Um, you seem to be optimistic about it, but how is that looking so far? So where science has failed us is in science communication, hmm. because up until now, People have been using a lot of facts, and we know that facts don't actually change people's minds very much. Statistics, eyes glaze over, people aren't that interested. But the science is real, and the science has been very accurate in diagnosing the problem. So the question now is, you know, do we want to take some of the medicines that science is offering? And it can't all be a scientific technological solution. There are a lot of them out there. There's uh, places like Project Drawdown that have just thousands and thousands of solutions, and when I was on Daily Planet, we featured a solution on the show every single day. So I've often said, like, solutions surround us everywhere, like unclaimed lottery tickets. Uh, but 
a bigger source of what we need to do is we really need to sort of shift our thinking, right? Because our thinking is Mm -hmm. kind of what got us into the trap in the first place. So kind of still thinking of ourselves as ruling the world or owning the world. Mm -hmm. These are, these are some problems over consuming absolutely everything and wasting everything. You know, we're a really deviant species in that way. You know, come to think of it, the other creatures might think of us as the psychopaths of the animal kingdom. Oh, we totally are 100%. Yeah. Well, you know, we have kindness in us too, but I think that, you know, when we're too selfish uh, and we only care about our species alone, that's when we get into a few problems. Is there more things that we can do as individuals that, in your opinion, really make a big difference? As individuals, like, I think that, you know, as I've mentioned, whether it's with microplastics or whether it's with the food that you eat or, you know, there's plenty of things. There's plenty of things. People do them all the time, whether Mm -hmm. they're riding bikes instead of taking cars, all that kind of stuff. But I think that we need higher level and and bigger level change, a shift in consciousness, Hmm. if you will. So let me give you an example of what I mean by that, of how we can think our ways into a different sort of reality. When I was growing up, I grew up in Hong Kong. We had 7-Eleven when I was growing up, right? Just like you did, except Hong Kong 7-Eleven was open from 7 till 11 o'clock at night, right? It wasn't 24 hours. (laughs) And that's because when I was growing up, society wasn't a 24-hour society, constantly churning, you know, buy, 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 blinky lights, all that sort of stuff, constant 24-hour consumerism, if you will. I want us to flash over to Los Angeles for a quick second, though. And in the 90s there, they had a blackout one day. It was like some sort of, I can't remember what caused the energy blackout. And all these people started calling the Griffiths Observatory and started calling the police, the LAPD. And they were all going, there's something crazy in the sky. You've got to look up. There's a big like orb-like thing in the sky. Mm -hmm. And that's when people realized at the Griffiths Observatory that people were seeing the Milky Way for the first time because they've never seen it without the lights. So one thing that I think about that I think would be great if we could do as a society is Really give people the universe back. Give them the night sky back, Mm -hmm. right? Remove this idea of this 24-hour society that none of us really want. We want to be able to sleep. We should be able to turn down the lights and the energy at night, only use it at least 12 hours a day. And that would release us from some of the energy and carbon costs that we have. The birds would be able to migrate and fly. They would. Same with the insects. We would sleep better. So there are things that we can do that are large scale that I think require a shift in thinking about how Mm -hmm. we operate in the world, right? Rather than just things like changing light bulbs, which, you know, has a role, but isn't going to change things on the scale that we need it to. Mm -hmm. Well, so how would you recommend that a person contribute to that big shift in consciousness? If, as you say, it requires like all hands on deck, an entire society or maybe on a governmental level for us all to change, what can we do as individuals to contribute to that? The thing that makes people not super doom and gloom is just getting involved, to be honest. Mm. And if you think about like the young people today who are such incredible badasses around the world and that just before the pandemic, 7 million of them marched. Seven million. Mm -hmm. We have never seen seven million people get up off their asses to do anything. (laughs) You know what I mean? So we have all of that momentum right now. So it's incredible and wonderful for people to just get involved in whatever capacity. You know, some people might like gardening. Mm -hmm. Some people might like, I don't know, protecting coral reefs. It it doesn't have to be everything. And I think it's exhausting if you try to Mm -hmm. do too many things. And I, I would actually advise against that unless you're, you know, a superhero. 
you know, try to live in the best way that you can. We know what we can do in terms of things like not eating meat, right? Uh, that's going to be helpful for some people who are on their way there eating less meat. And there are so many options now that that's so much easier than it was in the 1990s. You know, changing the way that you get around and changing your energy, your food, energy, and your waste, right? Removing some of those blind spots and seeing mm-hmm. what you can do in a small way, but also not beating yourself up about it too much. You live in a system that is constructed in a certain way. And so, you know, for you, for example, to live completely without plastics right now, it would be incredibly, incredibly hard. You can try, Mm -hmm. you can try, but you'll find that you'll be sitting on plastic within, you know, 10 seconds of like walking Mm -hmm. out the door. You'll be, you'll be touching it. Everything that you, Mm -hmm. you touch comes wrapped in plastic. So unless you moved somewhere like Kamikatsu, Japan, where they don't have it anymore, it would be pretty hard for you to kind of get around. So don't beat yourself up is one thing I would say, but get involved in one thing. Yeah. I think that's great advice because as you say, we do tend to get towards this doom and gloom attitude because it is so overwhelming to think of all the things and all the responsibilities that we're meant to do. I mean, you're talking about plastic, but then I remember during COVID, single-use plastic was the only thing that was hygienic because reusable towels and things would carry germs. And there's all these sort of voices telling us what is right and what is wrong. But I like your advice of just trying to stick to one thing at a time. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, you know, when you mentioned that about the germs, I mean, I started thinking about it and started thinking about like, when did we start getting the idea that everything needed to be single use? I mean, I know when it started, it started around the 50s, when we had this idea of disposable culture. But, you know, we also have this bizarre fear of germs, right? Like our entire culture is like, everything needs to be sterile, everything needs Mm -hmm. to be white. The reason we mine titanium dioxide is so that we can have white paper and white toothpaste and white everything. And that's based on fear. Because a lot of people know that actually, if you're surrounding yourself with germs a little bit, you're actually going to have, you know, a, a healthier biota, you know, flora, gut flora, all that sort of stuff. So we don't want to actually live in a hyper sterile environment because some of that has been marketed to us in a way, you know? So mm. I think rethinking the fear that we have that we can, I mean, obviously with a pandemic, I get it. We were afraid of touching stuff for a little while mm-hmm. there for sure, because we didn't know whether or not it could be transmitted through touch. But now I think we need to reassess some of the psychological reasoning for why we're so obsessed with having just one thing, because we're afraid of things being dirty all the time. And mm-hmm. dirt's not bad. <laughs> you know, we got to embrace it a little bit more. You're so smart. I feel like I'm learning so much from you. I feel like oh, we gosh. could just go on forever. But I'm afraid we're running low on time. Um, but before you go, I want to have a little rapid fire round of sure. questions. What song would you lip sync for your life to if you had to? Oh God, the first thing that comes to my mind is Eye of the Tiger. So I'll say that only because that's a good one. Yeah, your first choice is always the best one. Uh, (laughs) Question number two, calling or texting, which do you prefer? Calling. Oh my God. Yeah, no, I'm of the generation where I like to actually talk. Why would I text? It takes 10 times longer. I like to think about what I'm going to say. Oh, really? Oh yeah, no, no, no. I I like to blurt things out. (laughs) Yeah. Question number three. What advice would you give your younger self? What advice? Let me think about that for a second. Well, I think 
it would really be to be courageous and do the big unknown things, you know, step into that wild unknown and also not listen to naysayers because all along the way, they're going to be people who think that your dreams are too big, or you might even think that they're too scary and unrealistic and it's time to be mm-hmm. practical and all those sorts of things. But I think really the lives that are super fun are the ones that are, you know, where you're sort of bushwhacking and beating your own path, right? And you're charting your own way. And that's what makes it unusual. That's what makes it so that you're not living that daily grind, that nine to five, that, that you know, I don't want to say ordinary, but that that sort of crafted out, plotted out societal version of life that a lot of people um, are kind of just sort of churned right into right like you're kind of like a cog in the wheel of the machine and if you want to break free from that it's a bit painful because because <laughs> you're in the wilderness 100 for a little while but i think that uh it, it's really important to be in the wilderness it's really important to stay wild and and it requires quite a bit of courage to do that so i would encourage my young self to um to, yeah not give a about what other people say and just keep going there you have it stay wild I have one more question. We're asking all of the guests this, which is what advice would you give to a listener who's aspiring to become like you? Oh, well, I think that things are a little bit different uh, now in the new era compared to when I was starting out where it was definitely uh, TV, right? So I would guess that for people who are starting out now, you know, they have all the means really quite accessible to them, whether it's TikTok or Instagram, short video clips. Mm -hmm. And it's really being able to film yourself either interviewing somebody if you love interviewing. And that's one of my favorite things to do and crafting questions and sitting down and researching and then and then finding the person that you want to talk to and then practice some of that. Or if you're more interested in delivering information that you have discovered yourself, or going on an adventure or, you know, something like along those lines, then then record that to camera. And the key is practice, practice, practice. That's what you got to do. And then the next part, I suppose, is you've got to be really persistent. Um, one of the things that I did when I was starting out was I... I emailed over 2000 TV executives, right? So, and I don't know if anybody could do that now, but you you still probably could to be honest. You got to find the gatekeepers, you got to find the people who can open those doors for you and you got to be relentless. Um the key is to not give up because almost everybody gives up when they're doing these things. That's that's the that's the main thing. As long as you keep going, um, and just keep that dream alive and and keep at it and keep getting better and better and better at what you do. You are almost certain to succeed. I love that. That is such great advice. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Thanks so much for being on Think Queen. Where can everybody find you, by the way? Oh, thank you so much. I'm on Twitter at Zaya Tong. Um, and I'm also on Mastodon as well at Zaya. And it's been a joy and a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you so much, Queen. Thanks, Zaya. Think Queen is produced by Entertainment One, Director of Programming at E1's Podcast Network, Sasha Tong. Producer, Maddie Hanaka and Sasha Tong. Associate Producers, Chris Chu. Edited and mixed by Maddie Hanaka. For more episodes, subscribe to Think Queen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen. And if you like this podcast, share it with your friends and make sure to leave a rating and review. Subscribe now to Think Queen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.